Welcome to the very, very first episode of Take a Bow. I'm Lo Yijun, better known as Jun, a food writer and recipe developer from Malaysia who's been cooking, writing, and obsessing about the food of Asia and Southeast Asia. And I'm now the host and producer of this new show. Now, I know you must be wondering what is this podcast all about? Yes, Take a Bow is a pun. And as the bow alludes to, this show is about food, Asian food. I know Asian food might be a big catch-all term because it includes so, so many different cuisines. I mean, Japanese, Korean, Thai, Chinese, Indian, Malaysian, Mongolian, they're all Asian. So we definitely won't just be talking about bows on this show. Instead, we're going to explore the many diverse cuisines across Asia and we'll find the most interesting food stories out there and learn about how the many different cultures and communities in Asia shaped our food. We'll talk to chefs, farmers, food writers and anthropologists, learn how to eat and cook iconic Asian dishes and really we'll celebrate Asian food and give it the representation it deserves, letting it have its moment to take a bow. So if you're the kind of person who loves to eat, cook, or learn about the savory, sultry, salacious flavors of Asia, you are in for a treat. Now, before we dive into the first episode, I know I'm releasing the show right in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm sure lots of you listening to this will be affected by the lockdowns and quarantines all across the world. And to people in the food and restaurant industry especially, I know we're one of the hardest hit and my heart goes out to all of you. Let's all stay strong and stay safe and we'll weather through this together. After all, food is a constant in all our lives and it's only a matter of time before everyone starts hankering for good food again. But. In the meantime, for those of you cooped up at home, unsure of what to do or how to spend your time, I hope this podcast can serve up some entertainment to help you pass time and learn something new. Stay safe, everyone. Now, for the first couple of episodes, we'll be exploring the food stories in Southeast Asia, centering around Malaysia, which is my home country. Yes, full disclaimer, I'm Malaysian, so I might be biased when I say this, but I truly, truly believe that my country has one of the most underrated cuisines in the world. And it's just packed with so, so many crazy flavors and gripping food stories that are just waiting to be told. And this first episode is exactly the kind of story that I'm talking about. It's about a very special fruit that has a terrible reputation in the world of food. It's known as one of the stinkiest fruits out there with such a pungent aroma. It's banned in hotels and public spaces. And it's a fruit that has spawned so many videos of people eating it as a dare. But while this fruit might have a smelly reputation, in Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, and slowly in the rest of Asia too, this fruit is so, so prized. We actually call it the king of fruits. You might have guessed it, it's of course, durian. So in this episode, we are finding out more about this funky fruit and we'll hear the story of one particular durian variety that has dominated the industry in recent years to become the king of the king of fruits. Now first, 
If you've never heard of a durian, you might be wondering, what is a durian really? Is it a fruit? Does it really smell of rotting sewage? What does it even look like? Oh, it's complicated. You have to explain first that it's a fruit large enough that if it fell on you, you'd probably be seriously injured. It has big spines on it, right? Sort of like a chestnut. You know, I'm like, just imagine a giant chestnut falling out of a tree. That's a durian. That is Lindsay Gassick, a durian blogger and guide who's been chasing durian seasons across Southeast Asia for the past eight years now. I am originally from the United States. I run a travel and tour company, and I also have an online blog, which is dedicated to farm tourism, and in particular, durian tourism. So, according to Lindsay, durians are like large chestnuts falling out of trees. But what about its flavor? It's like um, it's like a avocado pudding. You know, actually here we do sometimes blend avocado with sweets to make like a pudding. So just imagine that it's sort of a vanilla, sweet and creamy kind of textured pudding with a little bit of a hint of something sulfurous. You know, like you can have that in something that you add egg to, sort of like an egg custard. Mm. And so this whole idea that Westerners hate durian is just fictitious because nobody even knows what it is. People were like, oh, you know, I'd heard this was going to be really gross, but actually it just tastes a little bit like oniony, which is unexpected for a fruit because in America, you know, we have apples and oranges and, you know, kind of more mellow fruits that you don't expect to have savory notes as well. But once people kind of just think of it like an avocado, because an avocado can also be savory, then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just like an avocado pudding. Okay. An egg custard avocado pudding with notes of vanilla? Yo, there's nothing else like that in the fruit world. Now that we've hopefully piqued your interest about durians, there's something else that you probably don't realize if you don't live in Southeast Asia. And it's that there are many, many different kinds of durian, just like there are tons of varieties of apples, like Fuji, Honeycrisps, Red Delicious. There are also many durian varieties. The durian fruit isn't just limited to one species either. Yeah, so the difference, you know the difference between a variety and a species? Imagine like dogs versus wolves. Those are different species. But if you think about like a chihuahua or like a Dalmatian or a beagle or one of the other kind of dogs, those are varieties. So when we're talking about durians, there are actually about 13 edible species of durian. So that's going to be like your wolves and dogs and coyotes and hyenas and... I don't know my dog species very well, but that's, you know, get the idea, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but when we're talking about varieties like Musan King or Blackthorn or um, Kung Po or Red Prawn, those are all, you know, like dog varieties, chihuahuas and beagles. So um, that's kind of a good way to think about it because it makes it mean that even within the different species, there's a lot of genetic variation. So if you can think of how many types of durian that you know in Malaysia that are like Musang King and Blackthorn and on and on, then think about how many varieties are available within every single species of durian. And like I said, there's about 13 edible species. And they can start hybridizing. And that's where the fun gets in there because now you have like dog wolves and dog hyenas and Mm. all kinds of crazy combinations of durians. And here's where it gets really interesting. Just like how over the years, there have been dog breeds that have gotten popular and then sort of lost popularity. I mean, remember how there was a time when chihuahuas and mini poodles were all the rage during, I guess, the era of uh, Paris Hilton? 
But nowadays, you don't really see many chihuahuas or poodles anymore. And instead, many of today's Instagram stars are Shiba Inus and Corgis with super jiggly butts, right? Well, deer and varieties have their rise and fall too. When I was a kid growing up in Malaysia, there was one variety in particular that was sold at every stall. It was called D24, or Sultan. But since the early 2000s, D24's reign ended. The reason why D24 isn't popular anymore is mostly because it's really susceptible to disease. It has a lot of problems with this one disease called Phytophthora and has a very limited area where it's not affected by this. But when people tried to grow it on a more commercial scale and take it out of the little micro region where it was happy, they found that mostly their trees were getting this disease, which affected the fruit quality and made it so that D24 doesn't ripen properly. So I'm sure that you've bought D24s and you open them up and like half of it's like perfect and half of it's like hard and potato and you have Mm. to like ask for another one. Happens a lot with D24. Mm -hmm. That's why. So then people were losing money because people were returning half-ripe durians and that sucked. And today in D24's place is a new durian variety that took over the durian monarchy. And aptly, its name is Musang King. Oh, Musang King is a really unique durian. It's pretty cool, actually, because it is so low water content compared to the others. So, for example, the reason why you never see a real red prawn in Singapore. Red prawn is the name of yet another variety of durian and is one that comes from the north of Malaysia, particularly from the state of Penang. Fun fact, its name comes from the orangey red hue of its flesh. Back to Lindsay. The reason why you never see a real red prawn in Singapore is because a red prawn is so high water content and durians actually have a bacteria inside them. Like a, they're fermenting as soon as they come off the tree. And the higher water content durians spoil a lot faster because they ferment faster, right? Mm. So that is why you basically can't get a red prawn from Penang to Singapore. It takes too long. It's going to be spoiled by the time it gets there. But a Musang King... It just, it's so dry, it keeps a really long time, and it stays really good, and it actually improves. Like, if you've ever had a Musang King straight off the tree, it's really kind of dry and sweet and kind of pasty, you know, sweet potato texture. It needs a little bit of time to get the bitter and the alcohol taste that Malaysian people really like, and Singaporeans like their durian a little bit on the overripe side, too. But the Musang King can handle it, whereas most other durians would probably be on the edge of spoiled. So it gives Musang King a lot more durability for traveling. Now this durability is one of the reasons why Musang King has taken the durian world by storm. But how did it come about? Was there a farmer who created the Musang King? Or did it come about by accident? Well, the origins of Musang King is actually slightly murky, but most literature points to the Malaysian state of Kelantan, to a mother tree planted decades ago in a region known as Gua Musang. There was this old tree that was eventually swallowed by an oil palm plantation, and people were taking cuttings from it because it was really good. And then those cuttings went to the secondary mother tree, which is in Tanamera, also in Kelantan. And that's where the tree where most people have gotten their durian trees from is still located. I think it's still alive. Um, The Malaysian government, after World War II, really tried to push food crops because it kind of became apparent that people in Malaysia weren't growing enough food to support the population. 
Um, and durians was one of the things that grows best. So they were trying to get people to grow a lot of durians, which mean there were a lot of contests, right? So we get, if you look at the register of Malaysian varieties, almost all of them come from like the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s when there was this like government push for it. So a lot of people were traveling around and looking for good varieties. And this tree in Kelantan became very famous. And this guy took the tree to Tanamera and planted it. And he was one of the first people to get it, why that tree is like 70 years old or something mm. now. Mm. And then most people went to him because he won that contest and got their budwood from him. Right. Um, but people before that, I mean, that the contest was late. Like people always find out about the varieties like way after they've actually become like a thing. Like farmers always know what's coming next, right? They're always looking for what they think will be the next good one. So by the time the government finds out about it, it's been around for like 15 years or something. So just as a recap, Musang King started off from a mother tree in Kelantan, then got grafted and transplanted onto a secondary mother tree. And then lots of people took more cuttings and budwood from this mother tree, not always through legal means. But that was when it got really popular. But as Lindsay alluded to, for a durian farmer, you have to be in a loop and know of secret trees producing really special fruit that you might think will get popular in 5 to 10 years. It's almost like taking a gamble in the casino, but only knowing your winnings after 5 years. Crazy, no? That's why most durian farmers decide to wait until the variety itself gets popular before jumping onto the bandwagon. Which is why you'll see many durian farms in Malaysia today chopping down their old durian trees and replacing them with the current trendy durian, Musang King. So I spoke to a durian farmer to find out more. Hi, my name is Jimmy. Um, I'm basically, uh, I have a farm here called Jimmy Durian Orchard. Uh, I started this farm uh, age of 27. Uh, now I have uh, about 18 acres of durian farm. All old trees, about 30 plus years old tree. That's Jimmy Lok. He has a small farm in Pahang, a state in Malaysia. Now, from hearing Lindsay talk about the history of Musang King, it might seem confusing how the same tree with the same genes can be transplanted to different areas and farms across the country without any mutations. So I asked Jimmy about this. It is a genetic process. Uh, why we take uh, Musang? Musang is uh, quality is consistent. So we want to clone it, just like, you know, let's say, uh, Jun, you are an excellent person, uh, but... It, very hard to find June again. So I want the only way I can clone you. And I say now, so cloning produce the same consistent quality. That is what all about, is it? But you know, when you eat a durian seed, it could be Mosang seed, but it won't be Mosang after next when you grow it, it won't be Mosang already because it's, it's, the DNA is mutated. So it's changed. So we start to clone it, you know, and the cloning is basically very simple. We take the, the mother cell, which is the, the skin of the Mosang King. And then transplant into a, a, as a new uh, new branch, cut out the rest, and this new branch become the Musang King. Because the cells of the plant are very basic. Like human being cannot transplant from your hand to my hand because our cell is more complex. But the cells on the plants are more basic. So you can attach a, a cell structure of the uh, Musang King uh, with the, the old kampong tree and attach to it. And this new attachment grow and become a new branch. So this will be the, the new uh, clone system. Right? and then become a Musang King. Ah, so from grafting and putting the Musang King branch on, 
you can make it into a Musang King tree. Grow, become a Musang King uh, Then I discarded the, uh, the 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 growth of the uh, kampong trees uh, and then the, only the Musang King branch will grow uh, and become a Musang fruit. Uh. the roots can be uh, old kampong tree. That's the uh, the beauty of the cloning of these uh, plants. Uh. Uh, as long as the, the new cell is like Musang, it will be Musang. Okay, okay. Just imagine if we go back to our dog analogy. This will sound a bit gruesome, but stick with me. It's as if we took a baby chihuahua, which we know is kind of going out of trend, and we take a bit of fur from a corgi and stick it onto the chihuahua. After some time, instead of growing into an adult chihuahua, the dog will turn into a corgi. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen to dogs in real life. It will be kind of messed up if it did. But in the plant world, in the durian world, it does. Now, many decades ago, Jimmy started his farm planting D24s, as was the zeitgeist of his time. But a few years ago, he's had to chop down his D24s and replace them with Musang King. D24 is popular, but uh, as, as the time goes by, D24 having a major crisis problem. Initially, the fruits are very high quality. As time goes by, the, the fruit quality becomes uh, an issue. Sometimes it's soft and sometimes it's hard, you know, inside. It's called loco in the Malay words. It's half ripe, half not ripe, and not nice to eat. Nah. That, as we heard from Lindsay, is the work of the Phythoptera disease. So that is a decision has to be made, is it? So I made that decision 15 years ago. And then, okay, chop all the D24 and transplant to uh, Mosang. Uh, that's how this happens. Huh? It seems like Probably it wasn't just you who found that problem with the D24s, right? Decision because it's uh, you planted so long and you just chop it. It's a loss, you know. It's, uh, it's you, very sad. It's not sad. You you lose uh, a lot of time, you know. But life has to make a decision, and uh, so sometimes you make fast decision, you can uh, benefit. So you need to find the best varieties, uh, actually. Fortunately for Jimmy, the decision to chop down his D24s and turn them into Musang Kings has reaped benefits. And it's thanks in part to a certain Hong Kong business magnet. Okay, it started from actually one person in Hong Kong, Stanley Ho. They bought, uh, he took his plane up and took a bunch of uh, Mosang King from Singapore. And it's a top of a tycoon, sir. And then, wow, this Mosang King. So, the, you know, China people are here, tycoon, also want, because now they're making more money. They say, I want to want a taste. So, the taste is uh, it's compelling. Like, it's, actually, it's quite nice. The uh, Mosang King, good Mosang King is very nice. Uh, so that's how you catch up, lah, and become a, a, a dream for a lot of Chinese and must taste Musang King. Yep, some say the whole Musang King movement was kickstarted by Stanley Ho, a well-known casino tycoon in Hong Kong and Macau. Based on articles by Forbes and The Star, he allegedly flew over to Singapore in 2005 on his private jet just to buy 88 durians, which was worth over 2,000 Sing dollars, or about 1,500 US dollars at the time. And he basically flew these 88 durians back to Hong Kong just to share it with his buddies. With me being a small podcast, unfortunately, I didn't get to question Stanley Ho about this, but I did speak to one of the people who has been making bank from this durian boom. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Daniel Yong the uh, Managing Director of Kami Food Services in Rembrandt. And what does your company do? What does Kami Food do? Uh, Kami Food basically is a food uh, manufacturing company. Uh, we are basically mainly engaged in to uh, frozen and chew products. 
uh, we produce a value-added seafood range and uh, also now into uh, the tropical foods mainly on uh, Musang King, the Ren. Daniel owns Kami Food, and in May 2019, China signed a trade agreement that allowed the import of whole frozen durians from Malaysia, when before that only Thailand really had the right to do so. So now with China in the picture, the durian export floodgates opened. I think uh, the China counterpart have been the single largest market currently for the uh, durian. Uh, probably, I would say, they take up 70% or 80% of the uh, market share on that uh, particular market. So uh, yes, uh, once we have gotten the approval, uh, once we are also the first five company that is given license, uh, the orders have been manifold. And of course, with this increase in demand for frozen durians, Musang King is primed to shine. Remember what Lindsay said about how Musang King handles shipping and freezing? You can ship it to places and it'll arrive more or less how it is supposed to be. And then the same when it freezes. Along with Musang King's natural hardiness, companies like the one Daniel is running have quickly figured out a way to freeze Musang King's really effectively and lock in all those flavors with minimal degradation of taste and texture. And that is by using liquid nitrogen. In terms of this nitrogen freezing, or they call cryogenic freezing, the freezing temperature is at very much lower, probably as low as minus 150 to 250 degrees centigrade Celsius. Whereas the normal freezing temperature would probably go to minus 45, minus 50 degrees Celsius. So uh, as fruits contain a lot of uh, you know, different molecules, we need to lock all the molecules and the taste profile in the shortest time. So to do it, then you will need a very high um, degree of uh, low temperature uh, processing. So would you say a durian before freezing and after freezing, there's the flavor and the texture, has it changed a lot? Well, uh, that should not have major changes. Actually, uh, because of the cryogenics uh, freezing capability, they are able to lock all the best of the durian in a very short time. Uh, however, because it's the, frozen, the durian is frozen, so the pungent taste of the uh, product is quite uh, you know, mild. So uh, for, of course, uh, fresh durian and the frozen durian, uh, the quality, I would say, 90% close. Uh, so for first-timer, they would think that uh, the durian is still as best as the fresh. But then when, when like, tourists from China or countries where we export durian to, when they come over to Malaysia, then they taste the really fresh ones. Then they're like, oh my god, it's so different. Uh, yes, I think uh, we would, uh, if you ask me, we would have, actually in durian business, we would have three stages uh, of the taste profile for, for those uh uh, foreigners where they are not able to have fresh food. So now uh, they are able to eat nitrogen-freeze durian. So that is the first uh, experience. Stage one. So when you have uh, stage one, you eat, wow, it's very good, very nice. And, uh, you know, but uh, when they start to have opportunity to come to Malaysia and they eat it fresh in the store, that is where we call the second stage. So when you have the fresh durian, the creamy of the durian, the taste profile of the durian is totally different. I mean, the experience is, is you know, you cannot be explained. <laughs> but still, the best durian, even a lot of Malaysian people might not know. The, the best time to eat the durian or the best taste profile is not what you are getting in 
the store where it's a fresh durian, you need to get to the farm to eat the durian because uh, the best profile uh, of the durian is still when the durian is dropped from the tree six hours after fermenting. That is your best time to eat the durian. So uh, in Malaysia, uh, most of the durian probably coming from Pahang, from Johor, from other parts. When you arrive to Kuala Lumpur, uh, probably it's really noon. And when you eat, start to eat durian, it's probably at the evening, 6, 7 o'clock at the time. It's still very good, but if you eat it in the farm, after 6 hours dropping from the tree, that is another level of uh, durian uh, eating. So yes, while durians are now a growing export to the rest of the world, and you might have seen it at Asian supermarkets all around you, the taste, texture, and the whole experience of eating and exported durian still pales in comparison to any you can find in Southeast Asia, and especially in Malaysia, because nothing beats a truly Malaysian durian experience. Most people, Malaysian style of eating durian is, we go eat durian after our dinner, you know, it's like a culture, it's like a gathering whether it's fan gathering or family gathering. So we gather together to have the happiness moment to eat durian. Personally, I've had so, so many moments of happiness through durian. And really, though we've just focused on the story of Musang King, it really is just the tip of the iceberg. Musang King is really just the gateway fruit to the world of durians, just like how McDonald's is the gateway meal to American food, as insulting as that might sound. Sorry, Americans. Well, it's the one that you can expect what it's going to taste like, which is like when you go to McDonald's, anywhere in the world, you can get your little whatever floppy burger and fries and it's going to taste basically the same. All right, that's what's great about Musang King is that you can rely on it to taste good almost all the time. Is it taste great? Is it like the best durian ever? I mean, I would say no, but it's a, it's a durian that serves a purpose and... It's a good one. So, appreciation to Musang King. Musang King is just the beginning of your durian experience. There's a whole slew of other durians out there. Some are sweet, some taste alcoholic, some are spicy, some even tingles your mouth. Just listen to Lindsay describe her favourites. I have a partiality to more bitter durians. Like one of the ones that have a little bit more earthy, less sweet and more flavour. I like any durian that has a bit of carbonation or like, like physical feeling on your tongue while you're eating it as well as taste whether it has that kind of tingle um spiciness kind of thing going on which i really like and appreciate mm. um and sometimes i'll actually dislike the taste of a durian but really like the texture and the sensation and so then i kind of like it and feel confused <laughs> <laughs> so so which durian out there has like the best of both worlds like it gives you a really good flavor but also the texture gives you that slight tingly spiciness no one variety will always have those things. But I would say I, the thing I love the most about durian is how many varieties there are, how many flavors there are. Durian has the possibility of having more than 200 different volatile aromas to give it different flavors. Each individual durian has only about 40 of those. So you can imagine just the range of possibilities if you're mixing and matching 240 different chemicals and different flavors into four batches of 40. Um, and I just hope that people, you know, just explore, just keep exploring all of the different kinds of durians and don't be afraid to try new things. Don't be afraid to try new things indeed. 
So if you've never had a whiff of durian, don't be disgusted by those videos and dares of people turning their noses up at durian. Because really, beyond Musang Kings, most of the exported durians you can get are a far, far cry from the ones you find here in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. Over here, they are gorgeous, creamy, pungently delicious fruits that are so deserving of their title as the king of fruits. Now that is it for the first episode of Take A Bow. It's actually my first time putting out something like this, which has a bit of investigative food journalism, a bit of narrative storytelling, and really I had so much fun recording this episode. But having said that, I am sure I still have tons to improve on. So if you have any feedback about the show or enjoyed it or learned something new about durians today, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. It will really help our little show grow and get more people excited about Asian food. Thank you Lindsay Gasek, Jimmy Locke and Daniel Yong for agreeing to be interviewed by this budding podcaster. Special thanks to Trisha Toh, Calvin Goh, and Magdalene Wong for the art direction for the show. The three of you are superstars and I'm so, so grateful to have your beautiful photos and artwork for this show. You can check out their artwork on our website, takeaboutpodcast.com. Our next episode will be out in two weeks where we will be exploring the story of one of the oldest coffee houses in Malaysia and learn of its links to British colonialism. Until then, this is Jun, bowing out. Bye.